This podcast is proudly supported by Red Energy, Prince Wine Store and the Bendigo Art Gallery, presenting Elvis direct from Graceland, created in partnership with Graceland. This Australian exclusive exhibition explores the life and style of Elvis Presley. On now until July 17, tickets from bendigoartgallery.com.au. I'm grumpy about the amount of dinosaurs who I otherwise respect enormously who work in the football media. Everybody knows... <laughs> well, you and I have been complaining about this for 40 years. I just found it extraordinary that so many people I respect, football commentators and former champion players, kept saying, but he's done nothing wrong. The club can't penalise him because he's done nothing wrong. He went out and had a good time. The antics towards women is what is going to get Jordan Goey into trouble. And I'm really disappointed that men I otherwise respect looked at that video and couldn't see how humiliating that would be towards women. Ladies and gentlemen, this is such a great pass-around dish. And people who say, oh, I don't like anchovies, just ignore them, do it anyway. But everything ends with a gate now, doesn't it, as a result of Watergate. Culturally, it changed our language. It changed the course of American politics, obviously. I don't know whether you've ever caught up with Bluey. Carol, have you ever seen an episode I've never seen an episode, but I'm well... Bluey has crossed my desk and I'm aware of the cultural phenomenon. Don't Shoot the Messenger podcast with Caroline Wilson and Corey Perkin. And welcome, everybody, to episode 223 of Don't Shoot the Messenger. I'm Caroline Wilson, coming to you from a wintry Melbourne and joined by my fellow podcaster, Corrie Perkin in Ballarat. Hello, Corrie. Hello, Caro. Hello, everybody. And it's winter solstice today, Caro, the day we are recording, which means it's the shortest day of the year and it's all uphill or downhill, whichever way you want to look at it from now. I think downhill, Corrie, if the days are getting longer. Although <laughs> I read something today that was, um, what did it say, that the earth takes a long time to warm up again and that is why July is certainly in the south part of the world, is in the southern hemisphere, is much, much colder than June. So it's going to get colder but at least it's going to be lighter for longer. Yeah, well, look, it's, um, it, it's beautiful weather here in Ballarat the last couple of days, although pretty icy cold, but... Um, can't complain. And how are you down in Melbourne? Oh, look, it's been lovely here too. It's been lovely here. It's been beautiful down the coast. It's been, um, yeah, I've been to see a good movie that I'm going to tell you about in a moment. We're going to um, dissect the 50th anniversary of Watergate and all the literature and film it has spawned, that unbelievable story. And um, it became much bigger than just the story of a break-in and a bugging and the end of a presidential career, didn't it? So um, we'll talk about that in a moment. We've got a bit of correspondence, Corrie. Um, Kim Gosling um, points out to me that I need to be a bit patient and kind to our local council workers and garden staff, um, you know, remember I was grumpy about the bad condition of our local parks and boy, it, yes. was, it was pretty disgusting this morning too. <laughs> Potholes and mud and anyway, just remember they're being hit by COVID as hard as anyone else. And we know that this is a massive issue. So be patient. Um, he's um, recommending um, a couple of books. Um, the Loveland's Robert Lukens, he recommended that and thanks you for such a great recommendation. So that's Kim Gosling. Thank you, Kim. And um, Elizabeth Watson, like you, Corrie, is regularly on the Western Highway, although she's going the other way, Ballarat to Melbourne. 
visiting family and she is loving the podcast while doing the trick, even listening to reruns. She recommends Victoria Park in Ballarat. Are you aware of that one, Corrie? Yeah, look, it is uh, it is a, a beautiful park, Caro. It's several hectares of uh, ovals and also natural parkland and woodland uh, lakes. It's just gorgeous. There are lots of areas where you can take the dogs off the lead. And like the tan track in Melbourne, you can actually walk around the circumference of it, which I didn't clock it the other day. It feels like about four kilometres. It could be more, could be less. But I would like to thank um, those Ballarat people, listeners who have been in touch with me to recommend various coffee shops and walks and things I can do with the children. You've all been absolutely wonderful. Thank you. So you visited Ballarat a lot over the journey, obviously, because you've had family there for a while now. But have you, having spent a full week there now and another one to go, do you feel you know it a lot better now? And are there more places you would recommend? Look, I think, Caro, certainly for people who can't make the overseas trip or Queensland or Northern Climb somewhere else over this winter period, there's a lot to be said about having a, a a week in a place or two weeks in a place because, of course, you really get to know it. Like I did in Port Ferry, Caro, I asked Francesca to put give me a list of not just things I can do with the kids but also really great places that I can go uh, have coffees. Well, she's also put restaurants and everything. When she's expecting me to go out with three small children to restaurants, I'm not really sure. But she's given me a really great list, which I'll share with Miss Jane so she can pop it on the show notes if anybody's going to Ballarat. But the thing about going away and spending a week or two weeks, you would have found this certainly when you had your three months in Amsterdam last year. You just get to know a place so much better, don't you? Not just the basics like where's a good dry cleaner or where is a yoga class or where's the best place for coffee, but you really do start exploring all sorts of different places because you're a local, you're a regular. The farmer's market, that's on at Lake Windery this uh, Saturday, which I can't wait for because I've been to that before with Caro, with um, with um, Francesca, uh, all sorts of different places. I think it's just the way to go. If you, if you can't get away overseas somewhere, try and have a week in Victoria. Well, your photographs of Lake Wendery have been absolutely beautiful and I'm on a still day and it's so full at the moment. I remember going there when it was empty and um, I remember one wintry holiday years ago when the kids were very little, my sister driving from Sydney and for some unknown reason we met in Ballarat and stayed at a um, a motel that had a heated swimming pool, indoor swimming pool. And um, we spent a very enjoyable day at Sovereign Hill, fabulous day. When we weren't at Sovereign Hill and or sleeping, we just took the kids and sat in the indoor pool, which was heated because it was so cold. We just, even our rooms were freezing. We just, it was the only place we could stay warm and the kids had a ball. We probably well, that sounds a bit like that sounds a rather boring holiday. But hey, look, if you're into indoor swimming pools, they probably loved it. But um, little kids love you know, that sort kid, of stuff. The, yeah, and little kids also. What I've noticed with ours is that they are comp- well, they're probably quite used to it, but they're completely oblivious to the cold so long as they're rugged up. So we've, we've they have so many layers on. They're like little Michelin men, but they're really happy going out in the cold and wet. And I have become accustomed to that too. You know the walking coat that I took, the Kathmandu coat I took to uh, on our Cornwall walk, which yes. I just yep. wear every single day down at the beach. Well, it's come up here with me. And joy of joys, I went into the Kathmandu shop the other day and said to them, look, I love this coat, bought it three years ago. 
is there anything like this? Is the style obsolete? And she said, actually, on the sale rack, Caro, lo and behold, there is my jacket in a different blue. I bought it $260 reduced to $120. Bargain. <laughs> Bargain. Bargain. So I've got my, I have my beautiful, I have two beautiful warm coats now. And so long as you're rugged up, it's just a beautiful place to be, providing it's not that chilly wind across the Western Plains, which we had the other day, very cold, very uncomfortable. Well, I'm good, a huge fan of Ballarat. I love it. Well, good local tip. The end of June is the time to buy coats. I'm sorry, retailers, but the sales are unbelievable. Now, Corrie, Watergate. June 17, 1972 was the day that five men broke into the Democratic election headquarters in the Watergate building in Washington and were caught by police. Now, quite apart from the fact that everything that happens now, when there's a scandal, at the moment in Melbourne with the AFL, we've got Dugowie Gate, but everything ends with a gate now, doesn't it, as a result of Watergate. Culturally, it changed our language. It changed the course of American politics, obviously. I've been talking to you about the First Lady and, you know, and one of the main characters, of course, and I said how... um, as Betty Ford, Michelle Pfeiffer actually steals the show, but a bit of Watergate obviously comes up in that. But culturally, it has created so much drama and literature. Well, you've been listening to a fabulous podcast. Not only did it bring about the downfall of a president, but so much more, Corrie. Well, Caro, a couple of podcasts. Firstly, last week's tip, I told everybody about the, the history, the history one, um, which has been, um, it's called The Rest is History, and it's a it's a British by two British uh, historians, but they that last week they did a two part thing on Watergate. Highly highly recommend. Uh, works works really well. Just if you want to have an overview. But look, Watergate was pretty big in our lives, Carol. It has been pretty big in our lives. You and I were uh, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, around that age when it all began. And for me, certainly living in the household of a newspaper editor, it was huge. But when I go back to those that time in our house, Watergate was just part of a lot of different things that were happening at the time. There was not only Nixon's 1972 absolute landslide election against George McGovern, but all, but earlier that year, uh, well, before the election, he visited China. And do you remember how big that was when he visited, he met Mao Zedong? Yep. Well, I remember studying it at school in politics, the, the day it was the, like the, the day Nixon yeah, recognised It was like the China. whole world stopped, wasn't it? It was yep. just this biggest thing. It was like, it, well, the Cold War effectively uh, started thawing then. But also in 1972, Gough Whitlam was elected. And as I've said before on the podcast, Gough Whitlam was a, a good personal friend of my dad's, even though, my dad tried to never take sides in politics, but there was a lot of Gough Whitlam in our lives at that time. Vietnam, my brother Steve, who is eight years older than me, was on the verge of being being called up before Gough Whitlam was elected. So that created a fair bit of concern and anxiety in our household because, you know, he was within a year of being called up. Um, and I do remember when, when Richard Nixon finally resigned after two years of trying to deny and then cover up that this was all, this, that the Watergate break-in really went back straight up, straight to the Oval Office. Um, he, when he resigned in 1974, I remember so clearly, Carol, where I was that day, our English teacher, John Woods, brought a TV into the classroom. So we were in Form 2. 
and we watched the Nixon resignation announcement. Did can you remember that time? Can you? Remember oh, I remember exactly where I was. I was at home in Adelaide Street. I was having, for some reason, I wasn't at school. Um, whether I was pulling a sickie or I was legitimately sick, but I remember sitting in our kitchen watching the speech on television, and I, I clearly remember because um, a friend of my mother's, Jenny Smith, who you know very well. Um, called and I was, I remember telling her mum wasn't home and saying, I'm watching Nixon resign. And um, and then I remember a few days later, mum saying um, how Gerald Ford had pardoned Richard Nixon. And she said, this is going to um, impact on him. And, you know, as it turns out, you know, that was seen as one of the key reasons that um, Americans turned on him in the next election. And, and for a, a very brief time, um, the Democrats took over, and, and Jimmy Carter, so a brief time back then. But it was an extraordinary time, and it was really as much of a story then when, when all the president's men came out about journalists as well. Although if you're watching Gaslit at the moment, it's also a pretty interesting story about the FBI and the men who investigated it. Um, you list all the wonderful films and TV shows, and I don't, have you finished Gaslit yet? Not yet. No, I'm, I'm watching it in real time, uh, although perhaps I'm a, a week behind. But, oh, um, it's extraordinary. Julia I, Roberts as Martha Mitchell is just... She's great, isn't she? Yeah, yeah. She, it's absolutely fantastic, even though there are moments with Gordon Liddy in prison that I could have perhaps done without. Uh, what, a, but, what a terrifying um, <laughs> character he was. My God. Wow. But, but for those people who are never quite sure how Watergate unfolded, it started as, uh, as a robbery. It started as a police around story. And 50 years ago, as Caro said, on the 17th of June, five blokes broke into the Democratic election headquarters and they were sprung by the police. And it started as just a normal crime story, which Bob Woodward first uh, and, and Carl Bernstein then, of course, because he it was his beat crime, crime in Washington. They kind of got a hold of it. And it was through Bob Woodward's um, deep throat, uh, his... his not so much whistleblower, but he ended, he later outed himself 20 years later. He was Mark Felt, who was at the time deputy acting deputy director of the FBI. But he was he was Bob Woodward's deep throat. And he always said to Bob Woodward, I'm never going to name names. I will direct you. You find out information and you can ask me, is it right or is it wrong? And I will give you the truth, but I'm not going to tell you. And there's that incredibly sort of famous line, which actually as it turns out, wasn't said. But in the movie, follow the money is what Mark Felt says. And you often say similar things, Caro, too, when you talk about stories that you've covered. And it is so interesting, isn't it? Politics, ambition and power, which is what this Watergate saga, which then eventually brought down the most members of the Nixon administration served prison sentences. And then, of course, Richard Nixon himself was disgraced and had to resign. But you often say, you know, it, it's the cover-up that is worse sometimes than the actual crime. Oh, look, and the way it, I mean, at the moment I'm watching Gaslit and, of course, you know, all the President's Men, when that film came out, I, I never actually read the book, but the film was absolutely brilliant. And I think to this day when um, Bob Woodward goes and interviews people for his other investigative stories, people think they're talking to Robert Redford <laughs> and absolutely spill their guts. But... um. So and and it obviously made the Washington Post. It made the um, oh we saw the film about her not long ago. 
um, Catherine Graham. Catherine Graham, Graham. Yeah. In, in, installed her as an, an American journalistic legend. You know the way she backed those two journo's in the face mm. of unbelievable adversity. And 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 the FBI do come out as certainly a couple of the young investigators, although they're smart, Alex, as heroes too in the in the Gaslit series. And then of course some. Um, you know, in terms of journalism, it also probably made the reputation of David Frost as well for the, yeah, for the interview yeah. he scored after the downfall of President Nixon. That's right. Look, there was an interview with that Ben Bradley, Bradley did on one of the anniversaries and it was before he died. And the, the reporter writing this piece asked Bradley, why the Washington Post? You know, you had you had great New York Times reporters, Chicago Tribune reporters, all based in Washington. Why the Washington Post? And Ben Bradley said, uh, "We had street reporters over at the New York Times. They had one or two heavy hitters in the political bureau uh, who might spend the day talking to Henry Kissinger on the telephone. But we had street reporters who were covering the beat, covering crime, covering the courts. Because of course, when these five guys were brought before the courts and charged, uh, there." That the Woodward and Bernstein discovered that there was that their legal fees were all being paid for by mystery sources. So again, what does a good journo do when they realise they're mystery sources? They try and find out who are the mysterious sources, and that of course led to um, John Mitchell and and his his team, oh. whose idea it was to break into the Democrat headquarters and put a few bugs in some phones and 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 illegally photograph some files. So really, as you always say, Caro, the, the cover-up is worse. In this case, it certainly was. Um, it did change investigative journalism forever. Woodward and Bernstein were convinced at the beginning, were absolutely convinced at the beginning. If you read all the President's Men, they felt that the bugging at the Watergate Hotel wasn't an isolated incident. And it must have been some, a part of something bigger, a larger campaign of sabotage, and they were determined to get to the bottom of it. And it, there are parallels there with investigative work that our colleagues have done in the media, um, you know, Nick McKenzie, um, even, you know, and you with the, with the Essendon drug scandal. There must be something more. There must be something more. Well, and you have a gut feeling, don't you, Caro? Well, that's true, but as, as is so often the truth, I mean, you talk about the cover-up, it was such a stupid, knuckle-headed thing to do. I mean, such a Mickey Mouse ridiculous way to try and get a political point scoring, uh, to, to try and get political advantage against the Democrats. And, you know, and, and Gordon Liddy, I mean, certainly the way he's portrayed in in some pieces of literature and certainly in Gaslit, he just comes across as a complete psychopath. And, you know, what were they doing dealing with these people? It was just, oh, look, it, you know, and the FBI, well, it, it the boss sh- of the it, FBI it leaking to the White House and um, oh, it, extraordinary. Have, have you read Blind Ambition by John Dean? No, I haven't. I haven't read, but I have uh, followed, I have followed John Dean quite a lot in the last four or five years because he writes opinion pieces for, uh, it's not the New Yorker, but some publication I read regularly. And he has spent um, this back part of his life because he was a young lawyer at the time he was made suddenly out of the blue, Nixon's attorney general or legal counsel. And, um, And he has, I think, spent most of his life trying to make up for this terrible, terrible, Error of judgment that he made, which saw him imprisoned for several months. So he comes um, across as such an arrogant, 
blinded, blinded by ambition and by, you know, the sycophancy to Nixon's. And I certainly very well portrayed by Dan Stevens in Gaslit, who, of course, um, we know him better as um, the star of Downton Abbey, <laughs> which is, um, it's a, a very different role for Dan Stevens. He's a really good actor. But certainly from Matthew yeah. Crawley in Downton Abbey to John Dean, it's quite extraordinary, the change. And um, Sean Penn, it's John Mitchell. I mean, he's unrecognisable, unrecognisable. Yeah, it's, it, it, is, it is truly a really great program. And, and the scenes, there, there are scenes when, when Martha says it and John alludes to it, his absolute and utter devotion to Richard Nixon. Uh, which is interesting because Richard Nixon was an outsider. Um, I read a great uh, biography, or um, dare I say I haven't finished it because it's about um, 800 pages big, but a wonderful biography by John Farrell of Richard Nixon, which came into the bookshop about 2017 or 2018. And he talks about how Richard Nixon was an outsider. He was from an impoverished family. He was a Quaker. He was very reserved. He was never an Ivy League boy. He just kind of got got to the top through sheer persistence. Um, luckily enough, he was deputy deputy president to, or um, vice president to uh, Dwight Eisenhower, but he never had a lot of friends in the upper echelons of the Republican Party. John Dean, of course, did. John Dean was the Ivy League boy. And there are lots of parallels, actually, Caro, with when you think about Richard Nixon and Donald Trump. Both of them were outsiders to the Republican establishment, both of them very thin-skinned, very sensitive um, and a lot of insecurities. Both of them hold a grudge. Um, as some reporter said recently, once wounded, these two men never stop bleeding, which is probably quite right. They both hated the media. Nixon's famous quote to his aides, the press is the enemy, of course reminds us of Donald Trump calling it fake news. It's really, really, uh, the parallels um, are, quite, um, are quite interesting. And um, and and on that, to think that it was um, a media person, Michael Shen playing David Frost, if you see the movie, who um, just completely exposed him, I guess, not that he hadn't already been disgraced. Um, and Frank Lang Langella, I think it is, who played Nixon. Just one more book I can really recommend, which uh, Mum gave me years ago and I loved, which is Personal History by Catherine Graham. Is, a great that autobiography. Is the, that is the finest, yeah, and it won a Pulitzer Prize. I agree, Caro. That is the finest memoir I have ever read. It is so beautifully crafted. My God, talk about a woman. Apparently she had no ghostwriter. No one helped her. Talk about a woman who missed her true vocation. She's the journalist. She's the writer in the family. Her father was a great you know, very famous newspaper editor. But isn't it a great read? It is. It's, it's absolutely wonderful. Now, Corrie, we digress because it's time to have a drink, having talked about um, one of the great stories of the 20th century. It's time to have a drink with Miles. Miles Thompson has arrived. Now, Miles, we talked last week about your wonderful, one of your winter packs, of selected wines, and mm. today we're going to dissect it, and you're going to give us a couple of recommendations. I would love to. <laughs> I want to hear my favourites. Yes, I do. I want. Um, to, I want at least one red and at least one white. Thank you. So we'll do one red, one white first. So well, I'll do a couple of reds actually. So there's a Spanish red in there called the Quinta Milu Milu Tempranillo. Um, it's from. It Ribera sounds. It's, that sounds like a Mexican dance. Milu Milu. Yeah, it does, doesn't it? Or a dish. <laughs> the Milu Milu. It I don't does. Know. 
It does, or a, a town in Western Australia. Yeah, anyway. That's true too, actually, yeah, or, or Northern Queensland. Um, yeah, so it's uh, it's so all Tempranillo from Ribera del Duero. So the really famous part of, of Spain is Rioja, or probably one of the most famous. Ribera is a little further south, slightly different style, a little more rustic. Um, but lovely, that lovely sort of like blue fruit, red fruit spice that you get from Tempranillo, a little bit of sort of tannin drying bites are really good with food um, and a medium sort of bodied style. So it's not super heavy, um, but lots of flavor. Fantastic. It's just such an awesome little wine. So we've had it before a couple of, uh, most years we've had it, it's been really great. So so you can buy that it on its pack. own. And, and remember, if you do go to princewinestore.com.au and put in the promo code M-E-S-S, you will get a podcast discount, not for the not entire for the pack, pack but, of the but dozen. for the wine singly, if there's yes. anything that sort of takes your fancy, you can go through. If you go to the pack section on the website, you'll see them all there and they have all the wines listed and you can click through and read about the wines and see what sort of takes your fancy. And how much is this Tempranillo? Uh, the Milu Milu is uh, $27. Sounds great. Yeah, and fantastic. what's the best white in the pack? Um, the best white in the pack is probably, I'd say, the Camille River Chardonnay. Um, I've probably talked about this before. This is their village of Chardonnay. They're from, from Camille River. So they're up in the sort of northern part of New Zealand. Um, they're very famous for Chardonnay um, in particular. So they make several single vineyards. And this is their entry level, but it's always just one of the best value Chardonnays. I don't know, in the world. That, that's what we sort of... Wow. We make the joke at work, but it's one of those things where we kind of think it... It's actually It's true. definitely a contender. <laughs> really? Yeah, fantastic. I think it's like $22 and it is just every year just absolutely over-delivers. A little bit of oak on it, like it's, but not, not too oaky. It's got a bit of richness, but still nice and fresh. So it's kind of sits in a really nice spot. So anyone who likes a little slightly fuller style will probably like it. But if you like some of those more modern style Chardonnays that we see in Australia, you, you'll probably like it too. Sounds fabulous. And is there another red you can um, single yeah. out? Yeah, the other one, it's actually a wine we import direct and it's called the Marchese Alfieri, uh, Alfieri Latota, which is a Barbera from Asti. And they are Barbera specialists. Where's, where's Asti? So Asti's in that Piedmont region. So Barolo Barbaresco. I've been to, can, I just, can I show off? I've <clears> been to Asti. Oh, what's it like? Oh, it's it's just beautiful. Piedmont, lovely is, little town. Pro, pro, yeah, probably for me, Piedmont is is more beautiful in many ways than Tuscany. I know that's a wild call. It's a big call. <laughs> Why? No, Corrie, expand, please. We want to vicariously well, fantasize well, about Europe. Ro- rolling hills are covered in vineyards. Everywhere you go, there are small and big vineyards. Any time of the year, it would be picturesque. In summer, of course, everything is lush, green, beautiful. I can imagine in autumn, Miles, it must be so beautiful. And you were there in winter, weren't you? Uh, we were there in March, early March. March, yeah, yeah. yeah. So just sort yeah, of coming early out. spring. Yeah, so yeah, it was, it was just, a bit it's, And the, town, bit sparse, the towns but pretty, are not touristy Pretty beautiful. Yeah. yeah, it's nice and small. Yeah, the towns are small, but there's a ton of amazing restaurants. And wine bars. Yeah, food, and... food is very important in that area, Carol. Mm, you get a lot of the French and Alps, Alpine uh, kind of feel with a lot of the cooking, a lot of the dishes. Mm. And although it doesn't have that renaissance, that deep renaissance culture that you get in Siena and Florence and, and other, other <coughs> excuse me, um, medieval renaissance towns of Tuscany, 
there is great heritage in 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 the farming culture. I, I just love it. I love Piedmont. There is, and it's only about an hour's drive well. south from Milan. Yeah, it's not far. It's it's. Re- I mean, yeah, considering how close. And Torino is really close too. So if you, and Torino is a great little city as well. So, so tell us about La Tota. Yeah, so bar- 100% Barbera. The nice thing about Barbera is it doesn't have a lot of tannin and it's sort of low acidity as well. So what you get is this really lovely soft and plush sort of style wine. Lots of um, lots of like sweet sort of like red cherry fruit. Lovely sweet spice. They, they put this in a little bit of oak, which is good for it because it adds a little bit of structure back into the wine. Um, but it's just such a like soft, easy, uh, it's just, you know, on its own, so easy to drink, great with, you know, some of those, you know, pasta dishes or things like that, pizza, that sort of thing. You know, those sort of like red sauce dishes, perfect, that sort of stuff. And we've been importing it. I think it's one of the first wines we ever imported as, as a business. And the the winemaker there is incredibly well respected. Is a absolute legend in Italy, and just the whole operation's just really wonderful. And if you ever go there, let us know because it is such an amazing visit. The castle and the and the yacht and the grounds and awesome. But the wine is just a joy to drink. I think that's why we love it so much. Corrie, twenty twenty three, Latota, Asti, and beyond. Miles, there's some great recommendations. Um, so we've got. A wonderful Chardonnay from New Zealand. It's Camilla River, yep. You don't need a um, COVID test to go to New Zealand from today, which is Thank good. Thank goodness. And um, the Tempranillo, which sounds wonderful from Spain. And then we go to La Tota, which is from a, uh, what's the wine Barbera. called? Barbera. Barbera. From the P- Piedmonte from region, region yeah. of Italy. Wonderful. That was The Cocktail Cabinet, brought to you by Miles Thompson. And just remember again, there are wonderful sponsors, www.princewinestore.com.au. Their website is a work of of literature. It's (laughs) awesome. (laughs) We've done a lot of work on it recently. Yeah, no, it it really is. It's fantastic. Thank you, Miles. Thank you. Corrie, I'm going to kick off BSF today. That is Books, Screen and Food. Anna from the Op Shop. I know we've mentioned the Tina Brown book before. The Palace Papers, Inside the House of Windsor, The Truth and the Turmoil. But boy, oh boy, what a rollicking read this is. But I remember you talking about that. Look, this is just an unbelievable story, completely shallow, completely, I mean, it, it's just an absolute pot boiler. And, and I guess, um, as has been said in several reviews of the book, and I'll fess up, I'm only halfway through, it's a really, really big book. But um, it's basically um, it it goes back to the uh, over the House of Windsor really for the last hundred or so years, and um, I guess um, most of the scandals appear sparked by women, and Tina Brown obviously investigates Wallace Simpson, Diana, Megan, but um, and Megan gets a big a big play as does Kate Middleton the former head of the Glossy Posse, as Tina Brown calls her. But the real, um, oh, look, the real spanner in the works and the real plotter and schemer out of this book is um, Camilla Parker Bowles. And it goes through her life and what a fascinating character she is and what a Machiavellian figure Camilla emerges as. I mean, she basically um, was a perfect royal mistress for many, many years and, and 
Tina Brown goes back all the way to when Charles and she first met in the block of flats she was living in, I think, in Belgravia many, many years ago when Charles was barely a teenager. Um, the way she got rid of former lovers by occasionally showing a fit of jealousy. Anna Wallace, the Scottish heiress, was one of them. But um, she really is seen as the uh, schemer who matched Charles with Diana. She felt that would be the perfect strategy. Um, Diana was someone who could be manipulated. She was young. She was pliant with a bit of luck, perpetually pregnant, according to Tina Brown. And, um, of course, she became... The sacrificial lamb. Um, look, it's it's an extraordinary story. It's um, it chronicles some of the tragic old servants of the royal family of the House of Windsor over the years who became the sources of Tina Brown, and she just sort of describes the sad little council flats that they live in now, dotted with the odd sort of royal present that they sort of and letter from the Queen or Prince Charles or the Queen Mother that they sort of dote over. Um, it, it's just a fabulous book, Corrie. It is, it's just a great read, so full of conspiracy, conspiracy theories and, you know, very honest in the fact that, you know, this house is being run by a very, very old woman now in her 90s with the person waiting in the wings, um, a septuagenarian. Who, who, wants, who wants to be a tampon who sits inside his, um, his lover's... Um... <laughs> But the Pants. but the fact that he's sort of waiting in the wings means that they're not exactly as as she points out a nimble organisation, and that's no. why they can be a bit clunky. Um, and just that sort of comment after Diana's funeral and after you know the issue with the flag with the that flag etc. Never again. Well, of course, then along came Megan. So look, it's an extraordinary book. Mm. I really recommend it as a great winter read. There we go. I've, I've ordered it with one of my favourite bookshops in Melbourne and um, I, I just have to go and pick it up. It's been there for ages. But, Caro, the thing I love about Tina Brown is that she is a little bit of an older contemporary of yours and mine. She became she became editor of Tatler magazine in 1979, which was around the time, of course, of Diana becoming uh, Prince Charles's girlfriend. I think that was 1980. What year did we watch the Royal Wedding together? Was that 1981? 1981. Yeah, 1981. Yep. Yeah. So, so all through her years at Tatler and then later at Vanity Fair, Diana featured significantly in Tina Brown's life, and in fact, they became they became good friends. And um, whenever Diana was in New York, sorry, my dog is crying for some reason in the background. Um, whenever, whenever. Uh, Diana was in New York. She always had lunch with Tina Brown. So there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of well sourced Diana info in that lot, and um, I th- I can't wait to read it. Well, I highly 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 recommend it. Now, Corey, I've also been to the movies and I've seen a cracker of a movie at the cinema. I, I read that you can watch it on Netflix. Whether that's true in Australia, I'm not sure, but this is the story of a military invasion and a great deception that went on by the British government and British intelligence during World War II. It's called Operation Mincemeat. This is a really rollicking film. It is so I've, I've read. I've read the book. If the film is half as good as the book, then jolly good. Well, it, it began as, as a book by Ewan Montague, who is played by Colin Firth in the film, a really interesting, interesting um, character, um, spy for the, for the British government. Um, but Ewan Montague wrote a book um, 
during or just after the war called The Man Who Never Was. And The Man Who Never Was became a movie with Clifton Webb and Gloria Graham. And it was a really, it was a fabulous film, a film um, in the 1940s. The Man Who Never Was, is um, it refers to a corpse. Basically, the government, with the tacit um, approval of Winston Churchill, robbed a grave of a, a, a Welsh man who had severe mental health problems, who committed suicide, and they planted him off the coast of Spain with papers that basically tried to dupe the Germans into thinking that the Allies weren't going to land in Sicily, but in fact they were going to invade Greece. Now, what goes on is incredibly complicated and complex, and the operation around Operation Mincemeat, as it became known, is is just extraordinary. And the book you've, I think you've read Operation Mincemeat, haven't you? Not The Man Who Never Was. Yeah. So the second yeah. one is by Ben McIntyre. And Ben McIntyre is now got, obviously, um, he's been able to unearth documents that weren't available because it was, the, the name of the dead man was never revealed at the time. And what has happened to him in his grave is fascinating in itself. It, it is a true story, as I said. This is a wonderful film, Corrie. Colin Firth is fantastic. There's a sort of a love triangle in the film that's probably slightly exaggerated. Um, Ian Fleming plays a major role, a, a young British um, government. Um, well, he was working too in um, for the British government at the time. And he is um, sort of writing one of his early novels. That's sort of juxtaposed through the film, which is really, really interesting as well. It's a great cast. Matthew McFadgen is also in it. Kelly MacDonald... Penelope Wilton, who, of course, we love from the Downton Abbey series and so many others, including Afterlife, is wonderful. Um, Corrie, it's a great story. It really is. And Johnny Flynn is Ian Fleming. In fact, there are a lot of writers. A lot of these spies ended up being writers as well. And some of the scenes in Spain and in Germany are, are fascinating as well. So really, really recommend it. Great. Sounds great. Well, it, it's written by Ben McIntyre, or the original book was written by Ben McIntyre. Uh, a Sun- Sunday Times investigative journalist, and it is a great book, particularly Father's Day, not that far away, uh, a really good one for dads or anybody who loves a good espionage, true life thriller. But I would say to, I really, really would recommend, everyone's in this, you know, the guy who plays the um, the um, coroner in Vera actually plays a coroner in this film. <laughs> Alex Jennings, who's played everyone from the, Prince of Wales to um, one of um, Prince, I think Prince Albert's brother in um, Queen in Victoria is is in it. He Alex Jennings um, plays a member of the the uh, I think the group of twenty or the League of Twenty who planned this operation. And there's a lot of pushback from various government sources. It's just extraordinary yeah. the way it happens. But the fact that the book you talk about only was written because of this new evidence that came to light when um, secret details were released a few years ago. So watch The Man Who Never Was as well. It's not as fleshed out, but it's really interesting. So that's my screen for the week, Operation Mincemeat, a lot better than the name, which I think is a pretty ordinary name for a film. Corrie, um, speaking of mincemeat, you have a recipe. <laughs> and it's not mincemeat. So, Caro, I, I thought this is a good one for you because you're about to uh, soon go to Scandinavia for your daughter Rose's wedding. So there's a Scandinavian feel about this little recipe and it came to me, comes to us at the podcast via 
Anita, our friend Anita Zima, and her daughter Daisy. Daisy helped Anita put this one together, and I'm sure neither of them mind me revealing that. Remember a couple of weeks ago I asked you and Brendan to come to Dunch and you had a prior commitment. So we had a Dunch and Anita was invited and she said, let me bring some pass-around food. Ladies and gentlemen, this is such a great pass-around dish. And people who say, oh, I don't like anchovies, just ignore them, do it anyway. So a little bit of grilled toast or a bruschetta, something quite small and bite-sized, spread, spread some butter on it and then you layer it with mandolin radish slices, so really, really thin radish slices, top it with an anchovy and a strip of roasted red capsicum so it's got that lovely bright red on top of it and that's it. Wow. So is cracked, it a- I, we, we put cracked pepper on it and a bit of, you know, rocket to sort of dress up the dish, the, the plate and everything. But it is absolutely stunning. That combo of the anchovy and the red capsicum and the radish. is so delicious. Well, and, but then the, well, it's, the, the anchovy and the capsicum is delicious because they've both got that kind of oily um, Italian kind of feel about it. But then with the radish, which gives you that hot hit and it's cold and it's it's got the bite and the chew, uh, it's just such a great combo. Daisy, well done, Daisy and Anita for putting it together. It's a really great dish. So I'm calling it Daisy's Perfect Pass-Around Dish. Can I just be a bit specific about the anchovy? Are we talking white anchovies that you buy at the deli or they're sort of upmarket tins of Spanish or Greek anchovies? Spanish, just, just normal, just normal anchovies in a jar, Caro. So you know, I love to go to Mediterranean wholesalers. Yep, they um, have fact, great Anita, ones. Anita, Anita bought her own jar, but it was identical to the ones that I get at the supermarket, or you get at Mediterranean wholesalers, or whatever. And don't be afraid to spend a little bit of extra money on anchovies because there is a difference between the cheaper variety and the more expensive. But just out of a jar, that's absolutely fine. So that's it. I thought that was just such a wonderful recipe, and. Uh, thank you, of course, to Red Energy who bring us BSF each week. Red Energy powered by Snowy Hydro, a leader in renewable energy. And don't forget to give them a call on 131806 as you're looking at your current power, power bills with your current provider and thinking, mm, maybe I should make the change. Caro, <laughs> you are grumpy this week. What are you grumpy about? I'm grumpy about the amount of dinosaurs who I otherwise respect enormously, who work in the football media. Now, everybody knows, <laughs> everybody knows. This is, you and I have been complaining about this for 40 years. They came to light again over the weekend, Corrie. Now, we, everyone knows about what Jordan Dugowie did. He went to Bali. He was filmed in a video, half exposing, about to semi-exposing a woman's breast and making disgusting, lewd sort of gestures that are incredibly offensive, I think, towards women and highly sexist and basically misogynistic. And this is a bloke with not a great history. He's been charged before. He has never been found guilty of indecent assault, but he's been charged a couple of times. And, look, he's got form, let's face it. I just found it extraordinary that so many people I respect um, of football commentators and former champion players kept saying, but he's done nothing wrong. The club can't penalise him because he's done nothing wrong. He went out and had a good time. Um, I mean, I don't uh, talk back callers to me on 3AW said, I'd love to have been in Bali doing that at the age of 26. 
it's fine to go out and have a few drinks and party at a nightclub. But the stuff, the antics towards women is what is going to get Jordan Degoe into trouble. The antics towards women are the reason Collingwood has taken his contract off the table. And I'm really disappointed that men I otherwise respect looked at that video and couldn't see how humiliating that would be towards women. Anyway, I'll leave it at that, Corrie. That story is still very much alive. And um, unlike Bailey Smith, who the Western Bulldogs, you feel that they knew those videos and that, sorry, the video and the photograph were coming and were well prepared by the time they did see the light of day. Um, they killed the story very, very quickly. Collingwood is dragging this on because Jordan Degoe just doesn't doesn't get it. Now, Corrie, I'm going to launch, or you're going to launch, in fact, into six quick questions for Red Energy. I am indeed. I, I saw an interesting report on the ABC the other night on Julian Assange, and I wondered whether you thought the Australian government should actively push the United States to free Julian Assange. I do. I think I think that um, Anthony Albanese, the new Australian government, has to do this. I mean, he's he's been in prison for so, he's in prison now. He's about to be extradited to America. I think he's got under two weeks now to appeal the decision to um, send him over to the US. I fear for him because I I don't see what's in it really for Joe Biden to allow Julian Assange to come back to Australia and go free. But that is exactly what should happen. He's been imprisoned and kept captive for far too long. It's just terrible what is happening. And I go back, to, in the end, it was investigative journalism. I know that it was very, very dangerous what happened, and I understand why the US government is incredibly sensitive. But as I say, I don't really see it. I think the political situation for Biden at the moment means he's up at Australia is up against it, but they have to pull out all stops to free Julian Assange, I believe. Don't know what you think, Corey. Oh, I, I agree. I agree, and um, I, I think, um, I, I think that also the fact that Barack Obama pardoned Chelsea Manning. Chelsea Manning was the American activist and whistleblower who assisted uh, Julian Assange and WikiLeaks in their investigations. The fact that Chelsea Manning is no longer serving a prison sentence, I think, kind of says it all, really, as far as I'm concerned on that matter. Corrie, last week the Victorian and New South Wales governments announced the introduction of a new pre-prep school year of play-based learning for all of four-year-olds, and it's free. Good call or bad call? A bloody good call, Caro. A great call. I just think this is an enlightened call. And I was interested to read that Paul Keating had something to do with this behind the scenes, suggesting to the two premiers of New South Wales and Victoria that they get together and perhaps do this as a joint initiative, which they did. Look, on so many levels, Cara, this is a great thing, but first and foremost, children at the front, it encourages kids with their learning and their playing and their socialising. It helps their developmental skills. It really, really gets them prepared for school. In Victoria, they're going to call it a pre-prep year. Well, one of my kids actually did a pre-prep year and benefited hugely from it. So I think that's great. It also will bring in more jobs to the sector. So the Victorian uh, Premier has said that there could be up to 6,000 more early childhood educators brought into the sector with an additional 5,000 workers needed to staff those pre-prep hours. 
And it will, of course, assist working parents, which is great. And as I said, a terrific example of the two state governments working together in a bipartisan way. So hopefully your little Sunday and my little Max, by the time they come along, and Florence, they will be the recipients of this new um, this new year, this pre-prep year, Caro. Yeah, it, it was an extraordinary story. I agree. Um, so my question to you, is AFL footy suffering from a saturation of worthy causes? I think it is. I think it is, and that's not to say that none of the causes are worthy because they're all incredibly worthy. I mean, we saw Spud's game last Friday night, which sadly for the Saints, they didn't manage to win. It was an upset win by Essendon. An extraordinary outpouring of emotion, really, in the interviews on radio and TV before the game, the addresses uh, by Nathan Burke and Tim Watson at the ground, um, the players getting together to talk about mental health. Of course, Danny Frawley took his own life, um, longest serving St Kilda captain, um, at the time a stalwart of the St Kilda Football Club and of um, the AFL industry, Richmond coach and, of course, media personality. Um, but, you, you know, we had Danny Frawley's game, Spud's game. The week or so before, we had Neil Danaher's um, big freeze with the Collingwood-Melbourne game on Queen's birthday Monday. Um, Richmond and St Kilda every year play for Maddie's Vision. And of course, St Kilda also have the pride game. I mean, St Kilda supporters love what their club is doing, but they also want their club to start winning a few of these games. Um, And then this Thursday night, and this is a cause dear to our own hearts, um, it's the Pink Lady game when Melbourne play Brisbane at the MCG. Now, the pink, they're not going to do a field of women in this game. They're only going to do that every four years. But it you know, must be difficult to drum up support for BCNA so soon after Fight MND. And I'm, again, not questioning any of this, but it's just really, really difficult. And then two weeks of the Sir Doug Nichols series, which is, of course is the Indigenous game, so the Indigenous round. So um, I, I wonder if people, um, I think, you know, I, I think, the clubs need to think very carefully about how these games are fixtured and the breakdown on, and the time between all of these games. And I hope when the Pink Lady and the Field of Women has their big game in a few years' time, a couple of years' time, that is very, very separate from the big freeze because they're both obviously incredibly important causes. Corrie, mm. to move from the sublime to the ridiculous, what was your favourite <laughs> Logie's gown? <laughs> well... It will come as no surprise, Caro, when you hear that I did not watch the Logies. I used to watch the Logies when I was a young teenager and it was pretty good fun then and we were all pretty proud of shows like, do you remember Rush? Yep. John John Waters? <laughs> Correct. And, uh, and the Sullivans and it was always rather jolly but I'm totally bored out of my brain now. But I did have a look at the fashions. I could not believe what Sophie Monk was wearing. I'll just leave it at that. But my three, two, one. My number three would definitely go to Kate Box, who looked so elegant in a cream silk shirt cut deep to the V with a pair of fabulous black wide pants. Very simple, nothing else going on except this wonderful sexy deep cut in the, in the, in the front of the shirt and an amazing necklace uh, of stones and rhinestones. Looked absolutely wonderful. The second would go to Kat, Kat Stewart, 
who looked beautiful in a long black swing skirt with a an olive gold kind of topped to it to it but my the hit for me was melissa leong in colette dinnigan melissa leong of MasterChef. she just looks great she she dresses in some terrific clothes she's such an individual dresser I, I thought she looked amazing. Yeah, she was on page one of The Age on Monday. I agree. I thought that was a fabulous outfit. I agree about Sophie Monk. And um, I think we'll leave it at that. Yeah, we might. I, I could go into outfits that shocked and appalled me, but I won't. I won't. I was, I was thrilled for Bruce McAvaney to be inducted into the Hall of Fame. I thought that was fab, fantastic. I, I agree with that. And I did see his speech uh, replayed and I thought he made a, a lovely and elegant speech. And also I must say Hamish Blake too, thanking people for sticking with a tel- with Australian television and free to air. I thought that was it was great too. He made a funny speech. Um, Cara, what's your favourite winter comfort food when you're snuggling up to watch the Logies? Osabuco. Is there a better dish than a really good slow-cooked Osabuco with quality I think veal. we do this every year with you. I think I, you plant this question every year. No, so Corrie. I ask you the same question. No, Corrie. talk about Osabuco. I have given the recipe in the past. I've never answered it in a quick question. I just forget how much I love it until I make it again. And it's so much better if you make it the day before. Quality veal shanks from your favourite butcher. Um, they're not cheap, but they're not ridiculously expensive. And a little bit of osabuco goes a long way. You don't need much. You just need crusty bread or mashed potato with it and a nice crisp green salad with avocado or without um, a really good gremolata. And lemons are everywhere at the moment, as is parsley. That is just, and it's such an easy dish to cook. It is beautiful. Corrie, you have an amazing fact for us this week. Well, just a few amazing facts relating to bluey. Carol, I don't know whether you've caught up with Bluey yet. Uh, it is a really successful television show, which, of course, has resulted in books, colouring in books, poster, posters, sticker, sticker books, you name it, Bluey's everywhere. But Bluey is an Australian television phenomenon. And like Bananas and Pyjamas and The Wiggles, we just seem to do kids' programs really, really well. It sells overseas, Bluey. It came onto our television screens Uh, firstly, about four years ago. It is now such a high-rating program. But a few things about Bluey. I don't know whether you've ever caught up with Bluey. Carol, have you ever seen an episode of I've never seen an episode, but I'm well. Bluey has crossed my desk and I'm aware of the cultural phenomenon. It was invented by a chap called Joe Brum. And Joe is the second eldest in the family of three boys. And he had an amazing, he has an academic, his parents are academics and I gather there was a lot of storytelling and play, makeup play in their household. And when he created this little character, Bluey, who was a blue healer, he decided that he was going to really focus on makeup play, makeup play with the parents, makeup play at school and, of course, with Bingo, who's Bluey's uh, little um, younger sister. So... At the moment where we stand, we have a new Bluey series, which has caused huge delight in this household. Thank you. Thank you, Lord, for the two weeks I'm looking after my grandchildren. <laughs> you give me a new series of Bluey. Oh, I um, get Blue- it. I get Bluey- I get the motivation. Yeah, Bluey is seven and 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 Bingo is five. And their dad is his name is Bandit and the mum is Chili. The mum is a riot. I mean, the mum reminds me so much of you and I when we bring up our kids, Caro. You know, she comes into the house after a big day at work because dad's usually the stay-at-home dad or he works from home. 
and she sits on the sofa and throws all her work on the sofa and the kids, Bluey and Bingo, just bound onto her, wanting to talk to her, cuddle her, fighting in front of her. She says, everyone, come on, just get out. Just give me five minutes, peace. I've just got home. It just, it just reminds me so much of us. But it's a beautiful series and I highly, highly recommend it if people haven't seen it. It, um, it debuted on the ABC on 2017, still going strong via ABC Kids. Um, and um, just a couple of little points about Bluey, um, some amazing facts. The series is made in Fortitude Valley in Brisbane, which is where Joe Brum, the inventor of Bluey, lives. You will see in, in, in certain episodes a number of Brisbane landmarks and locations. Some of the Bluey voices are done by the same people, so Uncle Stripe, um, is played by Dan Brum, who's Joe's younger brother. There are a number of Brum member, family members who, are, who pop up. And the theme music at the beginning um, is, is, it has become one of the best-selling songs um, on children's, in children's recording history because they have, they have a Bluey album or something and it sells really well too. So, I, you know, I, I just think everybody should jump on board with Bluey. So not so much an amazing fact this year, this week, Caro, but an amazing thing to do and I highly recommend it. Coming from someone who is looking after three very young children <laughs> in yeah. regional Victoria. Corrie, that's a great fact. It's been lovely to chat to you as always. You've done brilliantly given that you've also got two dogs and, um, yeah, it sounds like a very busy yeah. house. In the yeah, rash. three three dogs, three dogs, and three kids, and two dogs in the cupboard, and they're all in the cupboard at the moment. And I'm going to let them out in a minute. Corrie, um, we need to thank our podcast supporters, Red Energy, 100% Australian Electricity and Gas, and Prince Wine Store. Visit princewinestore.com.au and click on the Don't Shoot Pod. Sorry, don't shoot the messenger page for all Miles' recommendations and special discounts. Don't forget to listen to our bonus episode, Dear Caro and Corrie. And remember, you can connect with us via Instagram, Facebook and Twitter. And if you want our show notes delivered to your inbox each week, hit the sign up button on Facebook or in our show notes or send us an email and we'll subscribe you. Email feedback at don'tshootpod.com.au. And Corrie, what do we say? Don't shoot the messenger. This podcast is proudly supported by Red Energy, Prince Wine Store and the Bendigo Art Gallery, presenting Elvis direct from Graceland. Created in partnership with Graceland, this Australian exclusive exhibition explores the life and style of Elvis Presley. On now until July 17, tickets from bendigoartgallery.com.au.